Section 5 of The Wife of His Youth and Other Stories of the Color Line. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Wife of His Youth and Other Stories of the Color Line by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Section 5 Sicily's Dream. Chapter 1 The old woman stood at the back door of the cabin, shading her eyes with her hand, and looking across the vegetable garden that ran up to the very door. Beyond the garden she saw, bathed in the sunlight, a field of corn, just in the air, stretching for half a mile, its yellow, pollen-laden tassels overtopping the dark green mass of broad, glistening blades. And in the distance, through the faint morning haze of evaporating dew, the line of the woods, of a still darker green, meeting the clear blue of the summer sky. Old Dinah saw, going down the path, a tall brown girl, in a homespun frock, swinging a slat bonnet in one hand, and a splint basket in the other. "'Oh, Cicely!' she called. The girl turned and answered in a resonant voice vibrating with youth and life yes granny be sure and pick a good mess of peas child for your granddaddy's going to be home to dinner today the old woman stood a moment longer and then turned to go into the house what she had not seen was that the girl was not only young but lithe and shapely as a sculptor's model that her bare feet seemed to spurn the earth as they struck it that though brown she was not so brown that her cheek was darkly red with the blood of another race than that which gave her her name and station in life and the old woman did not see that cicely's face was as comely as her figure was superb and that her eyes were dreamy with vague yearnings cicely climbed the low fence between the garden and the cornfield and started down one of the long rows leading directly away from the house old needham was a good ploughman and straight as an arrow ran the furrow between the rows of corn, until it vanished in the distant perspective. The peas were planted beside alternate hills of corn, the cornstalks serving as supports for the climbing pea-vines. The vines nearest the house had been picked more or less clear of the long green pods, and Cicely walked down the row for a quarter of a mile to where the peas were more plentiful, and as she walked, she thought of her dream of the night before. She had dreamed a beautiful dream. The fact that it was a beautiful dream, a delightful dream, her memory retained very vividly. She was troubled because she could not remember just what her dream had been about. Of one other fact she was certain, that in her dream she had found something, and that her happiness had been bound up with the thing she had found. As she walked down the corn row, she ran over in her mind the various things with which she had always associated happiness. Had she found a gold ring? No, it was not a gold ring. Of that she felt sure. Was it a soft curly plume for her hat? She had seen town people with them, and had indulged in daydreams on the subject. But it was not a feather. Was it a bright-colored silk dress? No. As much as she had always wanted one, it was not a silk dress. For an instant, in a dream, she had tasted some great and novel happiness, and when she awoke, 
it was dashed from her lips, and she could not even enjoy the memory of it, except in a vague, indefinite, and tantalizing way. Cicely was troubled, too, because dreams were serious things. Dreams had certain meanings, most of them, and some dreams went by contraries. If her dream had been a prophecy of some good thing, she had by forgetting it lost the pleasure of anticipation. If her dream had been one of those that go by contraries, the warning would be in vain, because she would not know against what evil to provide. So, with a sigh, Cicely said to herself that it was a troubled world, more or less, and, having come to a promising point, began to pick the tenderest pea-pods and throw them into her basket. By the time she had reached the end of the line, the basket was nearly full. Glancing toward the pine woods beyond the rail fence, she saw a briar-bush loaded with large, luscious blackberries. Cicely was fond of blackberries, so she set her basket down, climbed the fence, and was soon busily engaged in gathering the fruit, delicious even in its wild state. She had soon eaten all she cared for, but the berries were still numerous, and it occurred to her that her granddaddy would like a blackberry pudding for dinner. Catching up her apron, and using it as a receptacle for the berries, she had gathered scarcely more than a handful when she heard a groan. Cicely was not timid, and her curiosity being aroused by the sound, she stood erect, and remained in a listening attitude. In a moment the sound was repeated, and gauging the point from which it came, she plunged resolutely into the thick underbrush of the forest. She had gone but a few yards when she stopped short with an exclamation of surprise and concern. Upon the ground, under the shadow of the towering pines, a man lay at full length, a young man, several years under thirty, apparently, so far as his age could be guessed from a face that wore a short soft beard and was so begrimed with dust and encrusted with blood that little could be seen of the underlying integument. What was visible showed a skin browned by nature or by exposure. His hands were of even a darker brown, almost as dark as Cicely's own. A tangled mass of very curly black hair, matted with burrs, dank with dew, and clotted with blood, fell partly over his forehead, on the edge of which, extending back into the hair, an ugly scalp wound was gaping, and though apparently not just inflicted, was still bleeding slowly as though reluctant to stop, in spite of the coagulation that had almost closed it. Cicely, with a glance, took in all this and more. But, first of all, she saw the man was wounded and bleeding, and the nurse, latent in all womankind, awoke in her to the requirements of the situation. She knew there was a spring a few rods away, and ran swiftly to it. There was usually a gourd at the spring, but now it was gone. Pouring out the blackberries in a little heap where they could be found again, she took off her apron, dipped one end of it into the spring, and ran back to the wounded man. The apron was clean, and she squeezed a little stream of water from it into the man's mouth. He swallowed it with avidity. Cicely then knelt by his side, and with the wet end of her apron washed the blood from the wound lightly, and the dust from the man's face. Then she looked at her apron a moment, debating whether she should tear it or not. "'I'm feared Granny'll be mad,' she said to herself. "'I reckon I'll just use the whole apron.' 
So she bound the apron around his head as well as she could, and then sat down a moment on a fallen tree trunk to think what she should do next. The man already seemed more comfortable. He had ceased moaning and lay quiet, though breathing heavily. "'What shall I do with that man?' she reflected. "'I don't know whether he's a white man or a black man. "'If he's a white man, I ought to go and tell the white folks up at the big house, "'and they'd take care of him. "'If he's a black man, I ought to go tell Granny. "'He don't look like a black man somehow or another, "'and yet he don't look like a white man. "'He's too dark, and his hair is too curly. "'But I must do something with him. "'He can't be left here to die in the woods all by himself. "'Reckon I'll go tell Granny.' She scaled the fence, caught up the basket of peas from where she had left it, and ran lightly and swiftly as a deer toward the house. Her short skirt did not impede her progress, and in a few minutes she had covered the half-mile and was at the cabin door, a slight heaving of her full and yet youthful breast being the only sign of any unusual exertion. Her story was told in a moment. The old woman took down a black bottle from a high shelf and set out with Cicely across the cornfield toward the wounded man. As they went through the corn, Cicely recalled part of her dream. She had dreamed that under some strange circumstances, what they had been was still obscure, she had met a young man, a young man whiter than she and yet not all white, and that he had loved her and courted her and married her. Her dream had been all the sweeter because in it she had first tasted the sweetness of love and she had not recalled it before because only in her dream had she known or thought of love as something supremely desirable. With the memory of her dream, however, her fears revived. Dreams were solemn things. To Cicely, the fabric of a vision was by no means baseless. Her trouble arose from her not being able to recall, though she was well versed in dream lore, just what event was foreshadowed by a dream of finding a wounded man. If the wounded man were of her own race, her dream would thus far have been realized, and having met the young man, the other joys might be expected to follow. If he should turn out to be a white man, then her dream was clearly one of the kind that go by contraries, and she could expect only sorrow and trouble, and pain as the proper sequences of this fateful discovery. CHAPTER Two. The two women reached the fence that separated the cornfield from the pine woods. "'How is I gonna get over that fence, child?' asked the old woman. "'Wait a minute, Granny,' said Cicely. "'I'll take it down.' It was only an eight-rail fence, and it was a matter of but a few minutes for the girl to lift down and lay to either side the ends of the rails that formed one of the angles. This done, the old woman easily stepped across the remaining two or three rails. It was only a moment before they stood by the wounded man. He was lying still, breathing regularly, and seemingly asleep. "'What is he, Granny?' asked the girl anxiously. "'A white man or not?' Old Dinah pushed back the matted hair from the wounded man's brow, and looked at the skin beneath. It was fairer there but yet of a decided brown. She raised his hand, pushed back the tattered sleeve from his wrist, and then she laid his hand down gently. Most likely he's a mulatta man from up the country somewhere. He don't look like these ere niggers round here, 
near yet like a white man. But the po' boy's in a bad fix, whatever he is, and I specs we better do what we can for him, and when he comes to, he'll tell us what he is, or what he calls himself. Hold his head up, child, and I'll pour a drop of this here liquor down his throat. That'll bring him to quicker than anything else I knows. Cicely lifted the sick man's head, and Dinah poured a few drops of the whiskey between his teeth. He swallowed it readily enough. In a few minutes he opened his eyes and stared blankly at the two women. Cicely saw that his eyes were large and black, and glistening with fever. "'How you feeling, sir?' asked the old woman. There was no answer. "'Is you feeling better now?' The wounded man kept on staring blankly. Suddenly he essayed to put his hand to his head, gave a deep moan, and fell back again unconscious. "'He's gone again,' said Dinah. "'I reckon we'll have to tote him up to the house and take care of him there. White folks wouldn't want a fool with a nigger man, and we don't know who his folks is. He's out of his head, and will be for some time yet, and we can't tell nothing about him till he comes to his senses.' Cicely lifted the wounded man by the arms and shoulders. She was strong, with the strength of youth and a sturdy race. The man was pitifully emaciated. How much the two women had not suspected until they raised him. They had no difficulty whatever, except for the awkwardness of such a burden, in lifting him over the fence and carrying him through the cornfield to the cabin. They laid him on Cicely's bed in the little lean-to shed, that formed a room separate from the main apartment of the cabin. The old woman sent Cicely to cook the dinner, while she gave her own attention exclusively to the still unconscious man. She brought water and washed him as though he were a child. "'Po' boy,' she said, "'he don't feel like he's been eating enough to feed a sparrow. He appears to be most starved to death.' She washed his wound more carefully, made some lint, the art was well known in the sixties, and dressed his wound with a fair degree of skill. "'Somebody must have been trying to put your light out, child,' she muttered to herself as she adjusted the bandage around his head. "'A little higher, a little lower, and you wouldn't have been here to tell a tale.' "'Dim clothes,' she argued, lifting the tattered garments she had removed from her patient. "'Don't belong round here.' That kind of weaving come from down toward South Carolina. I wish Needham would come along. He can tell who this man is and all about him. She made a bowl of gruel and fed it drop by drop to the sick man. This roused him somewhat from his stupor, but when Dinah thought he had enough of the gruel and stopped feeding him, he closed his eyes again and relapsed into a heavy sleep that was so closely akin to unconsciousness as to be scarcely distinguishable from it. When old Needham came home at noon, his wife, who had been anxiously awaiting his return, told him in a few words the story of Cicely's discovery and of the subsequent events. Needham inspected the stranger with a professional eye. He had been something of a plantation doctor in his day, and was known far and wide for his knowledge of simple remedies. The Negroes all around, as well as many of the poorer white people, came to him for the treatment of common ailments. "'He's got a fever,' he said, after feeling the patient's pulse and laying his hand on his brow, "'and we'll have to give him some yerb tea and nurse him till the fever wears off.' 
I spec, he added, that I knows where this boy come from. He's most likely one of them bright me lotters from Robeson County. Some of them call themselves Crotan Injuns, what's been conscripted and sent to work on the fortifications down at Wilmington or some else another, and done escaped and got most killed getting away, and wasn't none too well fed before, and nigh about starved to death since. We'll have to hide this man, as we is likely to get into trouble ourselves by harboring him. If they catch him here, they's liable to take him out and shoot him, and just as likely us too. Cicely was listening with bated breath. Oh, granddaddy, she cried with trembling voice. Don't let him catch him. Hide him somewhere. I reckon we'll leave him here for a day or so. If he'd come from round here, I'd be scared to keep him, for the white folks would probably be looking for him. But I knows everybody what's been scripted for ten miles round, and this here boy don't belong in this neighborhood. When it gets so he can help himself, we'll put him up in the loft and hide until the Yankees come, for they're coming show. I dreamt last night they was close to hand, and I hears the white folks talking to theyselves about it. And the time is coming when the good Lord gonna set his people free, and it ain't gonna be long, neither. Needham's prophecy proved true. In less than a week, the Confederate garrison evacuated the arsenal in the neighboring town of Patesville, blew up the buildings, destroyed the ordnance and stores, and retreated across the Cape Fear River, burning the river bridge behind them, two acts of war afterwards unjustly attributed to General Sherman's army, which followed close upon the heels of the retreating Confederates. When there was no longer any fear for the stranger's safety, no more pains were taken to conceal him. His wound had healed rapidly, and in a week he had been able, with some help, to climb up the ladder into the loft. In all this time, however, though apparently conscious, he had said no word to anyone, nor had he seemed to comprehend a word that was spoken to him. Cicely had been his constant attendant. After the first day, during which her granny had nursed him, she had sat by his bedside, had fanned his fevered brow, had held food and water and medicine to his lips. When it was safe for him to come down from the loft and sit in a chair under a spreading oak, Cicely supported him until he was strong enough to walk about the yard. When his strength had increased sufficiently to permit of greater exertion, she accompanied him on long rambles in the fields and woods. In spite of his gain in physical strength, the newcomer changed very little in other respects. For a long time he neither spoke nor smiled. To questions put to him, he simply gave no reply, but looked at his questioner with the blank unconsciousness of an infant. By and by he began to recognize Cicely, and to smile at her approach. The next step in returning consciousness was but another manifestation of the same sentiment. When Cicely would leave him, he would look his regret, and be restless and uneasy until she returned. The family were at a loss what to call him. To any inquiry as to his name, he answered no more than to other questions. He come just before Sherman, said Needham after a few weeks, like John the Baptist before the Lord. I reckon we'd better call him John. So they called him John. He soon learned the name. As time went on, Cicely found that he was quick at learning things. 
she taught him to speak her own negro english which he pronounced with absolute fidelity to her intonations so that barring the quality of his voice his speech was an echo of cicely's own the summer wore away and the autumn came john and cicely wandered in the woods together and gathered walnuts and chinkapins and wild grapes when harvest time came they worked in the fields side by side plucked the corn pulled the fodder and gathered the dried peas from the yellow pea vines cicely was a phenomenal cotton picker and john accompanied her to the fields and stayed by her hours at a time though occasionally he would complain of his head and sit under a tree and rest part of the day while cicely worked the two keeping one another always in sight they did not have a great deal of intercourse with other people young men came to the cabin sometimes to see cicely but when they found her entirely absorbed in the stranger they ceased their visits for a time cicely kept him away as much as possible from others because she did not wish them to see that there was anything wrong about him this was her motive at first, but after a while she kept him to herself simply because she was happier so. He was hers, hers alone. She had found him, as Pharaoh's daughter had found Moses in the bulrushes. She had taught him to speak, to think, to love. She had not taught him to remember. She would not have wished him to. She would have been jealous of any past to which he might have proved bound by other ties. Her dream so far had come true. She had found him. He loved her. The rest of it would as surely follow, and that before long. For dreams were serious things, and time had proved hers to have been not a presage of misfortune, but one of the beneficent visions that are sent, that we may enjoy by anticipation the good things that are in store for us. CHAPTER Three but a short interval of time elapsed after the passage of the warlike host that swept through north carolina until there appeared upon the scene the vanguard of a second army which came to bring light and the fruits of liberty to a land which slavery and the havoc of war had brought to ruin it is fashionable to assume that those who undertook the political rehabilitation of the southern states merely rounded out the ruin that the war had wrought merely ploughed up the desolate land and sowed it with salt perhaps the gentler judgments of the future may recognize that their task was a difficult one and that wiser and honester men might have failed as egregiously it may even in time be considered that some good came out of the carpet-bag governments as for instance the establishment of a system of popular education in the former slave states where it had been a crime to teach people to read or write, a schoolhouse dotted every hillside, and the state provided education for rich and poor, for white and black alike. Let us lay at least this token upon the grave of the carpetbaggers. The evil they did lives after them, and the statute of limitations does not seem to run against it. It is but just that we should not forget the good long however before the work of political reconstruction had begun a brigade of yankee schoolmasters and schoolmams had invaded dixie and one of the latter had opened a freedmen's bureau school in the town of patesville about four miles from needham green's cabin on the neighboring sand hills it had been quite a surprise to miss chandler's boston friends when she had announced her intention of going south to teach the freedmen 
Rich, accomplished, beautiful, and a social favorite, she was giving up the comforts and luxuries of northern life to go among hostile strangers, where her associates would be mostly ignorant negroes. Perhaps she might meet occasionally an officer of some federal garrison, or a traveler from the north, but to all intents and purposes her friends considered her as going into voluntary exile. But heroism was not rare in those days, and Martha Chandler was only one of the great multitude whose hearts went out toward an oppressed race, and who freely poured out their talents, their money, their lives, whatever God had given them, in the sublime and not unfruitful effort to transform three millions of slaves into intelligent freemen. Miss Chandler's friends knew, too, that she had met a great sorrow, and more than suspected that out of it had grown her determination to go south. When Cicely Green heard that a school for colored people had been opened at Patesville, she combed her hair, put on her Sunday frock, and such bits of finery as she possessed, and set out for town early the next Monday morning. There were many who came to learn the new gospel of education, which was to be the cure for all the freedmen's ills. The old and gray-haired, the full-grown man and woman, the toddling infant, they came to acquire the new and wonderful learning that was to make them the equals of the white people. It was the teacher's task, by no means an easy one, to select from this incongruous mass the most promising material, and to distribute among them the second-hand books and clothing that were sent, largely by her Boston friends, to aid her in her work, to find out what they knew, to classify them by their intelligence rather than by their knowledge, for they were all lamentably ignorant. Some among them were the children of parents who had been free before the war, and of these some few could read and one or two could write. One paragon, who could repeat the multiplication table, was immediately promoted to the position of pupil-teacher. Miss Chandler took a liking to the tall girl who had come so far to sit under her instruction. There was a fine free air in her bearing, a lightness in her step, a sparkle in her eye, that spoke of good blood, whether fused by nature in its own alembic, out of material despised and spurned of men, or whether some obscure ancestral strain the teacher could not tell. The girl proved intelligent and learned rapidly, indeed seemed almost feverishly anxious to learn. She was quiet, and was, though utterly untrained, instinctively polite, and profited from the first day by the example of her teacher's quiet elegance. The teacher dressed in simple black. When Cicely came back to school the second day, she had left off her glass beads and her red ribbon, and had arranged her hair as neatly like the teacher's as her skill and its quality would permit. The teacher was touched by these efforts at imitation, and by the intense devotion Cicely soon manifested toward her. It was not a sycophantic, troublesome devotion that made itself a burden to its object. It found expression in little things done rather than in any words the girls said. To the degree that the attraction was mutual, Martha recognized in it a sort of freemasonry of temperament that drew them together in spite of the differences between them. Martha felt sometimes, in the vague way that one speculates about the impossible, that if she were brown, and had been brought up in North Carolina, she would be like Cicely, and that if Cicely's ancestors had come over in the Mayflower, and Cicely had been reared on Beacon Street, in the shadow of the State House dome, 
Cicely would have been very much like herself. Miss Chandler was lonely sometimes. Her duties kept her occupied all day. On Sundays she taught a Bible class in the schoolroom. Correspondence with bureau officials and friends at home furnished her with additional occupation. At times, nevertheless, she felt a longing for the company of women of her own race. But the white ladies of the town did not call, even in the most formal way, upon the Yankee schoolteacher. Miss Chandler was therefore fain to do the best she could with such companionship as was available. She took Cicely to her home occasionally, and asked her once to stay all night. Thinking, however, that she detected a reluctance on the girl's part to remain away from home, she did not repeat her invitation. Cicely, indeed, was filling a double role. The learning acquired from Miss Chandler she imparted to John at home. Every evening, by the light of the pine knots blazing on Needham's ample hearth, she taught John to read the simple words she had learned during the day. Why she did not take him to school she had never asked herself. There were several other pupils as old as he seemed to be. Perhaps she still thought it necessary to protect him from curious remark. He worked with Needham by day, and she could see him at night, and all of Saturdays and Sundays. Perhaps it was the jealous selfishness of love. She had found him. He was hers. In the spring, when school was over, her granny had said that she might marry him. Till then, her dream would not yet have come true, and she must keep him to herself. And yet she did not wish him to lose this golden key to the avenues of opportunity. She would not take him to school, but she would teach him each day all that she herself had learned. He was not difficult to teach, but learned indeed with what seemed to Cicely marvelous ease, always, however, by her lead, and never of his own initiative. For while he could do a man's work, he was in most things but a child, without a child's curiosity. His love for Cicely appeared the only thing for which he needed no suggestion, and even that possessed an element of childish dependence that would have seemed, to minds trained to thoughtful observation, infinitely pathetic. The spring came, and cotton-planting time. The children began to drop out of Miss Chandler's school one by one, as their services were required at home. Cicely was among those who intended to remain in school until the term closed with the exhibition in which she was assigned a leading part. She had selected her recitation, or speech, from among half a dozen poems that her teacher had suggested, and to memorizing it she devoted considerable time and study. The exhibition, as the first of its kind, was sure to be a notable event. The parents and friends of the children were invited to attend, and a colored church recently erected, the largest available building, was secured as the place where the exercises should take place. On the morning of the eventful day, Uncle Needham, assisted by John, harnessed the mule to the two-wheeled cart, on which a couple of splint-bottomed chairs were fastened to accommodate Dinah and Cicely. John put on his best clothes, an ill-fitting suit of blue jeans, a round wool hat, a pair of coarse brogans, a homespun shirt, and a bright blue necktie. Cicely wore her best frock, a red ribbon at her throat, another in her hair, and carried a bunch of flowers in her hand. Uncle Needham and Aunt Dinah were also in holiday array. Needham and John took their seats on opposite sides of the cart frame, with their feet dangling down. 
and thus the equipage set out leisurely for the town. Cicely had long looked forward impatiently to this day. She was going to marry John the next week, and then her dream would have come entirely true. But even this anticipated happiness did not overshadow the importance of the present occasion, which would be an epoch in her life, a day of joy and triumph. She knew her speech perfectly, and timidity was not one of her weaknesses. She knew that the red ribbons set off her dark beauty effectively, and that her dress fitted neatly the curves of her shapely figure. She confidently expected to win the first prize, a large Morocco-covered Bible, offered by Miss Chandler for the best exercise. Cicely and her companions soon arrived at Patesville. Their entrance into the church made quite a sensation, for Cicely was not only an acknowledged belle, but a general favorite, and to John there attached a tinge of mystery which inspired a respect not bestowed upon those who had grown up in the neighborhood. Cicely secured a seat in the front part of the church, next to the aisle, in the place reserved for the pupils. As the house was already partly filled by townspeople when the party from the country arrived, Needham and his wife and John were forced to content themselves with places somewhat in the rear of the room, from which they could see and hear what took place on the platform, but where they were not at all conspicuously visible to those at the front of the church. The schoolmistress had not yet arrived, and order was preserved in the audience by two of the elder pupils, adorned with large rosettes of red, white, and blue, who ushered the most important visitors to the seats reserved for them. A national flag was gracefully draped over the platform, and under it hung a lithograph of the great emancipator, for it was thus these people thought of him. He had saved the Union, but the Union had never meant anything good to them. He had proclaimed liberty to the captive, which meant all of them, and to them he was, and would ever be, the great emancipator. The schoolmistress came in at a rear door, and took her seat upon the platform. Martha was dressed in white. For once she had laid aside the somber garb in which alone she had been seen since her arrival at Patesville. She wore a yellow rose at her throat, a bunch of jasmine in her belt. A sense of responsibility for the success of the exhibition had deepened the habitual seriousness of her face, yet she greeted the audience with a smile. "'Don't Miss Chandler look sweet?' whispered the little girls to one another, devouring her beauty with sparkling eyes, their lips parted over a wealth of ivory. "'The law will breast that child,' said one old woman in soliloquy. "'I thank the good master I's lived to see this day.' Even Envy could not hide its noisome head. A pretty quadroon whispered to her neighbor, "'I don't believe she's naturally as white as that. I spec she's been powdering, and I know all that hair can't be hern. She's got on a switch, shows you bone.' "'You knows that ain't so, May Liza Smith,' rejoined the other, with a look of stern disapproval. "'You knows that ain't so. You'd give your everlasting soul if you was white as Miss Chandler.' and your hair was as long as hern. "'By Jove, Maxwell!' exclaimed a young officer who belonged to the federal garrison stationed in the town. "'But that girl is a beauty.' The speaker and a companion were in fatigue uniform, and had merely dropped in for an hour between garrison duty. The ushers had wished to give them seats on the platform, but they had declined, thinking that perhaps their presence there might embarrass the teacher.' 
they sought rather to avoid observation by sitting behind a pillar in the rear of the room around which they could see without attracting undue attention to think the lieutenant went on of that genonian figure those lustrous orbs that golden coronal that flower of northern civilization being wasted on these barbarians the speaker uttered an exaggerated but suppressed groan his companion a young man of clean-shaven face and serious aspect nodded assent but whispered reprovingly shh someone will hear you the exercises are going to begin when Miss Chandler stepped forward to announce the hymn to be sung by the school as the first exercise, every eye in the room was fixed upon her, except John's, which saw only Cicely. When the teacher had uttered a few words, he looked up to her, and from that moment did not take his eyes off Martha's face. After the singing, a little girl dressed in white, crossed by ribbons of red and blue, recited with much spirit a patriotic poem. When Martha announced the third exercise, John's face took on a more than usually animated expression, and there was a perceptible deepening of the troubled look in his eyes, never entirely absent since Cicely had found him in the woods. A little yellow boy, with long curls and a frightened air, next ascended the platform. "'Now, Jimmy, be a man and speak right out,' whispered his teacher, tapping his arm reassuringly with her fan as he passed her. Jimmy essayed to recite the lines so familiar to a past generation of schoolchildren. I knew a widow very poor, who four small children had. The eldest was but six years old, a gentle, modest lad. He ducked his head hurriedly in a futile attempt at a bow, then, following instructions previously given him, fixed his eyes upon a large cardboard motto hanging on the rear wall of the room, which admonished him in bright red letters to always speak the truth, and started off with assumed confidence. I knew a widow, very poor, who... At this point, drawn by an irresistible impulse, his eyes sought the level of the audience. Ah, fatal blunder! He stammered, but with an effort raised his eyes and began again. I knew a widow, very poor, who for... Again his treacherous eyes fell, and his little remaining self-possession utterly forsook him. He made one more despairing effort. I knew a widow very poor, who four small... And then, bursting into tears, turned and fled amid a murmur of sympathy. Jimmy's inglorious retreat was covered by the singing in chorus of The Star-Spangled Banner, after which Cicely Green came forward to recite her poem. "'By Jove, Maxwell,' whispered the young officer, who was evidently a connoisseur of female beauty. "'That isn't bad for a bronze Venus. "'I'll tell you. "'Shh!' said the other. "'Keep still.' When Cicely finished her recitation, the young officers began to applaud, but stopped suddenly in some confusion, as they realized that they were the only ones in the audience so engaged. The colored people had either not learned how to express their approval in orthodox fashion, or else their respect for the sacred character of the edifice forbade any such demonstration. Their enthusiasm found vent, however, in a subdued murmur, 
emphasized by numerous nods and winks and suppressed exclamations. During the singing that followed Cicely's recitation, the two officers quietly withdrew, their duties calling them away at this hour. At the close of the exercises, a committee on prizes met in the vestibule and unanimously decided that Cicely Green was entitled to the first prize. Proudly erect, with sparkling eyes and cheeks flushed with victory, Cicely advanced to the platform to receive the coveted reward. As she turned away, her eyes, shining with gratified vanity, sought those of her lover. John sat bent slightly forward in an attitude of strained attention, and Cicely's triumph lost half its value when she saw that it was not at her, but at Miss Chandler that his look was directed. Though she watched him thenceforward, not one glance did he vouchsafe to his jealous sweetheart, and never for an instant withdrew his eyes from Martha, or relaxed the unnatural intentness of his gaze. The imprisoned mind, stirred to unwonted effort, was struggling for liberty, and from Martha had come the first ray of outer light that had penetrated its dungeon. Before the audience was dismissed, the teacher rose to bid her school farewell. Her intention was to take a vacation of three months, but what might happen in that time she did not know, and there were duties at home of such apparent urgency as to render her return to North Carolina at least doubtful, so that in her own heart her au revoir sounded very much like a farewell. She spoke to them of the hopeful progress they had made, and praised them for their eager desire to learn. She told them of the serious duties of life, and of the use they should make of their acquirements. With prophetic finger she pointed them to the upward way which they must climb with patient feet to raise themselves out of the depths. Then, an unusual thing with her, she spoke of herself. Her heart was full. It was with difficulty that she maintained her composure. For the faces that confronted her were kindly faces, and not critical, and some of them she had learned to love right well. I am going away from you, my children, she said. But before I go, I want to tell you how I came to be in North Carolina, so that if I have been able to do anything here among you for which you might feel inclined, in your good nature, to thank me, you may thank not me alone, but another who came before me, and whose work I have but taken up where he laid it down. I had a friend, a dear friend, why should I be ashamed to say it, a lover, to whom I was to be married, as I hope all you girls may some day be happily married. His country needed him, and I gave him up. He came to fight for the Union, and for freedom, for he believed that all men are brothers. He did not come back again. He gave up his life for you. Could I do less than he? I came to the land that he sanctified by his death, and I have tried in my weak way to tend the plant he watered with his blood, and which, in the fullness of time, will blossom forth into the perfect flower of liberty. She could say no more, and as the whole audience thrilled in sympathy with her emotion, there was a hoarse cry from the men's side of the room, and John forced his way to the aisle and rushed forward to the platform. Martha! Martha! Arthur! Oh, Arthur! Pent-up love burst the floodgates of despair and oblivion, and caught these two young hearts in its torrent. Captain Arthur Carey, of the 1st Massachusetts, 
long since reported missing and mourned as dead, was restored to reason and to his world. It seemed to him but yesterday that he had escaped from the Confederate prison at Salisbury, that in an encounter with a guard he had received a wound in the head, that he had wandered on in the woods, keeping himself alive by means of wild berries, with now and then a piece of bread or a potato from a friendly negro. It seemed but the night before that he had laid himself down, tortured with fever, weak from loss of blood and with no hope that he would ever rise again. From that moment his memory of the past was a blank until he recognized Martha on the platform and took up again the thread of his former existence where it had been broken off. And Sicily? Well, there is often another woman, and Sicily, all unwittingly to carry or to Martha, had been the other woman. For, after all, her beautiful dream had been one of the kind that go by contraries. End of section 5. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.